Hello and welcome to the Hope City Church Podcast. We're always so encouraged to know that God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please send a message to lifechange at hopecityonline.net. Now, let's prepare our hearts for a powerful message out of God's Word. I want to keep the train rolling down the tracks today for this rebranded series. I've watched the last two sermons that Pastor Robbie has preached, you know, uh, talking about how Christianity has got the wrong perception than what was originally intended, right? That, that Jesus came to do something radically different. And if you take the past two sermons that Robbie's preached and boiled them down, it comes down that we're supposed to love each other, right? We're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love people. And it's not about heaping all these extra requirements and rules and regulations and all these things that push us back into that temple model that he's been talking about. And so today I want to talk about a way we can change that perception from Philippians chapter 2. We'll get there just a second, but I want to let you know what my mind went to when I thought about this theme of of rebranding, of just the idea of branding in general and what it means in, in business and in our culture. And I thought of a book called Branding Faith by a guy named Phil Cook. I read this book several years ago, and and Phil Cook's kind of an odd bird. He's got a a PhD in theology, but he's also got a degree in film, and he has a a company called Cook Pictures who does TV and film production, but he also goes into organizations and churches and businesses and helps them with their branding, helps them with the perception that a community or a consumer has of their products or services. And he says this about the idea of branding. He says, first, it isn't what we say it is. It's what they say it is. In other words, while we try our best to shape the message and story that surrounds a person, project, or organization, branding is ultimately what happens in the mind of an audience or consumer that matters. The big question is, what do they think of when they think of you? And that's what you've been talking about the last couple of weeks, isn't it? What does the outside world think of you as a Christian? What does the unchurched think of you as the church made up in the whole? What are the things that come to mind? What are the impressions and perceptions that they have? Because when you ask them, what do you think of it? And they respond with that answer. That's the brand that has been perceived and impressed on their hearts And minds, and unfortunately, when we ask people these different questions, what do you think of Christians? What do you think of the church? Many times we'll get answers like hypocrites, right? Selfish, angry, all these different things that when you hear those, you go, whoa, 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 that's the exact opposite of what we're shooting for, right? That's the exact opposite of what Christ came to do. And so I want to try to help with that maybe a little bit today in your life individually. Then when it's fleshed out individually, it will begin to be seen corporately because I believe we can change that perception. I believe we we can begin to change that perspective if we change the actions that are present in our lives. We can talk about it all we want to, right? Well, we can post as many Facebook uh, Bible verses and, and, and inspirational quotes and all these things, but what do people see lived out? What actions are right in front of them to impress their lives? Okay, he says he's a Christian, but he responds in that way. They say they're a follower of Christ, and yet they put themselves first constantly. 
And as I think about this, I want you to know from the get-go, I'm not just preaching a sermon at you. I'm preaching this to my heart. Even as a Christian and as a pastor for many years, I still need to take an inspection of my heart. What's the perception? What's the brand I'm putting out to the world around me? I uh, give you a little family history and confession to let you see this a little more. I've got a brother and a sister, but it's not that cut and dry, that simple. You see, my brother is not my biological brother. His dad, when he was 16 years old, died of a heart attack in his sleep. He didn't have anywhere to go. My parents brought him into my family. I was five or six years old at the time. So all I've ever known is him being my brother. My sister is my half-sister. We have the same dad, different mom. So from my parents, the family that I've lived in all my life, I'm the only biological child and I was the youngest of the bunch. So I say all that to say I was spoiled rotten. Like, okay, if you look up spoiled brat, mama's boy in the dictionary, picture me, bowl cut down to here, big old buck teeth, just smiling like I just got away with something I shouldn't have got away with. Because that was my life. I was the golden boy. I got away with anything and everything I wanted to. So by nature and nurture, I'm a very selfish person. I think I should get my way. I think I should get to pick. I think I should get to make the decision. It should be about me. And that's the opposite per- perception that a Christian should be putting out there to the world, right? My wife on the other end, my wife's over here on the f- second row. Everybody look at her, wave, smile. She hates attention. I'm going to get it in the car for this, but I want everybody to see her. She's the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, I'm the center of attention. I- I'm the selfish one. She was the fourth of five children. Three boys with strong personalities in front of her and a baby sister that is the epitome of a baby sister behind her. She is smart, but she can't spell selfish, if you know what I mean. Like to the point, if you, if you were able to make an exact clone, get a replica of her, put both of them in a car and say you have one duty, one task for this experiment. Y'all have to go and get something to eat. They would both die in that car of hunger because it would be an endless cycle of what do you want? I don't care. What do you want? What do you want? I don't care. What do you want? When you're trapped in the middle of five kids like that and you don't have a big personality, that's how you become, right? It's about whatever you want and I'll be happy. Whatever you need and I'll be satisfied. Two different family dynamics, two different mindsets, but we're going to focus on the former one today because that's the one, if we're all honest, is more present in our lives, isn't it? The selfishness, the me, I'm the center of attention. And when that is present in our lives as Christians, that's a gigantic problem, isn't it? Because that is the wrong impression, that is the wrong perception that needs to be in the minds of people that we meet. But I'm not saying this is easy. Because as Christians, we still live in a culture, right, that pumps the opposite message. It's about you. It's about your desires. It's about your wants, your needs. And we see it all the time. I was watching TV recently, and I saw one of the AT&T commercials, you know, the cell phone commercials, and it's got the, the guy there in a suit, and he's very serious, and he's got all the kids around the table with him, right? And he's asking them these questions, and the point of the commercials is for you to get it and see that the obvious choice is AT&T, right? So these kids get it, you should get it. It's a simple decision to make. Well, in the, uh, the commercial, the guy asked the kids, should I get a fast car or a slow car? What are kids going to say, right? Fast car. They just start screaming, fast car. You need a fast car. And he responds with a follow-up question. Well, why should I get a fast car? The, the natural answer would be because it's more exciting, right? Or you can get somewhere quicker. And those would be what you would think would come to mind. But the kid shouts out because you deserve it. 
And then the commercial shifts gears and it becomes like this hip-hop song and there's a beat that drops in and the kids start dancing and they just start chanting over and over and over again, you deserve it, you deserve it. And it zooms back in on the guy right in the middle and he goes, you're right, I do deserve it. And isn't that the message that the enemy's been trying to pump into our hearts and minds from the garden? That God tried to, to take this from you, he's trying to keep this from you. You deserve this. You're entitled to this. You should reach out and take this. But it couldn't be further from the truth. When we buy into it, we change the brand, we change the intention, we change the perception and impression that we are supposed to leave on this culture and world around us. Greg Laurie said it this way, All the great cultures and influences of the world have always been about self. Greece said, be wise and know yourself. Rome said, be strong and discipline yourself. Education said, be resourceful and better yourself. Psychology says, be confident and assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive and please yourself. Humanism says, be capable and believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior and promote yourself. But Jesus said, be humble and sacrifice yourself. But we don't follow that too many times, do we? We follow the world. We follow this impression. We fall into the culture instead of what Christ has called us to be. And we wonder why the world has the wrong brand in mind when they think of us. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 with that in mind. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be. And keep in mind, Paul's in prison when he's writing this. And he's writing to this church and he's telling them, this is how we should act. This is how we should behave. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, which there is in all of those, so therefore complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. There we go again, what you've been talking about every week of this series, loving God, loving others. Being in full accord and of one mind. And he fleshes this out in some practical ways for us. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to or clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, there we see that word again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for the next few minutes, I want to give you Three points. If you're a note taker, you can pull out your, your bulletin, information pack, program, whatever you call it here, and jot down some notes. I want to give you a few principles that you need to practice, I think, if we're going to change the perception back to its original intention. The first thing I think we see here is our ambitions need constant inspection. If we're going to change this perception, if we're going to rebrand this thing, I think our ambitions need constant inspection. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. Every single action, every single word, every single decision needs to be evaluated and see, is this empty of selfish ambition? 
in vain conceit. Why am I doing this? Imagine how radically different people's perceptions would be of us as Christians if we lived this one thing out. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We saw it for what it was and how destructive it was to us, our witness, and the church. My family goes on a beach trip with uh, several different couples every year. Young married couples, same age and stage in life. And, and two of the women that are part of the trip found out in the last couple of years that they had a, a very serious gluten allergy. Like, not, like we're not doing gluten because it's the hipster thing to do everywhere now, but because this is like really serious and destructive to their lives. So everything that came into this house the whole week while we're on this beach trip, every ingredient was read. Is there gluten in this? Everything was inspected. At restaurants, managers were brought out. You know, waiters were interrogated. They brought out one dish, and the girl didn't even taste it, didn't even smell just looked at it and said, there's gluten in this. Called the manager out, and they were like, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so apologetic that, that this was done wrong. And they took it back, and they replaced her meal. They were vigilant about making sure not a single bit of it came into contact with their food. Why? Why were they so serious about this? Because it was dangerous. It was destructive to their lives, to their future, to their happiness, to their health. The rest of the trip was going to be completely different if this came into contact with their body. I know that's an extreme example, but what if we thought about selfish ambition and vain conceit in those manners? That every single thing we brought into our life and everything we put out from our lives, we said, does this have selfishness in it? Am I doing this just because it's me and what I want or am I thinking of others? Am I putting them first? Selfish ambition is this self-seeking mindset. It's this, my personal goal is pursued over you. And what's ironic in this time and season that we're in, being in a, you know, a political race, an election year, This word for selfish ambition in the Greek was actually used by Aristotle to describe the the political clawing and fighting and cutthroat mentality that the politicians at this time would use to gain public office. It's this ugly self-promotion that pushes oneself oneself up in the eyes of people by stepping, stepping on the neck of someone else. And so often we'll look at that in a politician and we'll say, I hate them, man. They're liars, they're they're scheming, they're selfish. And yet I do it in my family all the time with my kids. No, daddy doesn't want to play right now. He wants to sit here and watch TV and be lazy. No, I don't want to sacrifice and serve you in that way. I want my needs met. Whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's extended family, wherever it might be, how do you think that brands the perception of us as Christians in the minds of others? Our ambitions need constant inspection. Number two, if we're going to change this perception back to its original intention, we must constantly copy the humility of Christ. If we're going to do this, we've got to constantly, daily copy the humility that Christ displayed. But the biggest problem, I think, for us in this, going back to the original illustrations I use, is that we copy the pride of our culture too often and not copying the humility of Christ. See this word here for humility, it means lowliness of mind. It was a word that the Greeks would use to speak of people who were repulsive to them. They were less than they were. They they prided themselves on being better and superior to others. So Paul is telling us here we should see ourselves as selfless servants. That's who we should be. 
not just things we should do, but that's who we should be through and through. And I think if we're going to change this perception of Christianity in our community, we need a new mind when it comes to humility. Because when we think of humility, we think of this prideful American mindset, right? We think of it like maybe the Greeks did. I can't be humble. I can't show this weakness. I can't allow them to get away with that. I've got to get mine right here and right now. That's the opposite of what the real mentality is for biblical humility. The first thing here that that we need to know is that humility is not about inferiority, but about seeing ourselves accurately. That's what true humility is. It's not about seeing ourselves inferior, I'm worthless, I just just go eat worms, nobody likes me, everybody hates me kind of thing. No, no, no. It's about seeing ourselves accurately, though. Seeing ourselves in response to Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. The word here means to have a deep and accurate sense of one's size. To put it into perspective. Last year on our anniversary, to show you again how amazing my wife is, for our anniversary present, we went to Monday Night Football, okay? To watch the Panthers beat the Colts, right? And I can remember, I don't know why I had this experience, right before the game, you know, they've got this big American flag out over this entire football field and this big pop star singing the national anthem and jets are flying over and there's all this craziness going on. And I had this really humbling experience. For some reason, God allowed me to take a different perspective in that moment and see, you know, from a different angle. Because I got to think, and I got to looking around this whole stadium, you know, 70,000 people. And I thought, man, I'm just a tiny speck in the middle of this stadium. And then I I looked off in the distance, and I saw these skyscrapers, and I thought, man, this stadium's just a speck in this city, which is just a speck in the state, which is just a speck in this country, which is just a speck in this world, which is really just a speck in the galaxies and solar systems, right? And I was able to zoom out and have this mentality of, man, I'm really small. But it wasn't depressing in that moment. It was really freeing. It was accurately humbling in that moment to see, man, it's not all about you, Skip. There's a lot more out there. But so often we don't do that zoom out thing, do we? We zoom in. And it's about me, and it's about my agenda, and it's about my time, and it's about my desires, and about my wants, my, 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 all of these things. And we're not copying the humility of Christ in that moment, are we? Because what did he do? He came for you. He came for me. He let go of equality with God, is what it says here. Sitting on a throne, being praised nonstop, over and over and over again. He said, I'm going to lay this down, and I'm going to go for you. I'm going to go to the cross for you. What is he calling you to sacrifice in humility for those around you? The second aspect of humility that we need to get a new mentality with is that it's not weakness, but meekness. It's not weakness, it's meekness. This literally means power under constraint here. When we see Christ coming humbly and laying this down, it doesn't mean he's weak. It doesn't mean he's missing out on anything. It's actually showing how strong he is because he's able to constrain it and hold it back and use it for the good of others. But we have this opposite mentality. If you were to come into my house right now and walk into my dining room, there's a beautiful bridal portrait on the wall of my wife. She's got her hair and makeup done and her beautiful gown on. But in the picture, we had one picture made with the dog that we had at the time sitting beside her. This wasn't just any dog. This was a purebred English Mastiff. I'm talking about a big old muscled up powerful dog, about 180 pounds. Her name was Nala because she looked like a lion, and Lion King was my favorite movie growing up, so it just worked out perfectly. But there was a thing about Nala. If you were walking her, 
and she saw a squirrel and she decided she was going after that squirrel, you were going after that squirrel. Like you can lay down and try to stop, but she's going to pull you like a bulldozer because you're so strong as an ox. But there was also a meekness about this huge, powerful, muscled up, fierce dog. That if a child came in, man, any one of your children could have climbed on her, rode her like she was a horse, kicked her. If she had a ball in her mouth, they could have been elbow deep in her mouth pulling out a ball. There would have been no growling. There would have been no biting. There would have been no hair raising. There There was a power under constraint that I think knew, yeah, I'm powerful, and yeah, I'm big, and yeah, I could snap off this kid's arm with one bite, but I'm going to control that because they're more important than me. They're more significant than me. I want their enjoyment first. I want their good first. I want them to be first. Isn't that what we see in Christ? That there was no one more powerful. There was no one more worthy. There was no one more glorified. But there was also no one more humbled. To look and say, you know what, I'm going to put this under control. I'm going to put it for the good of these people. Yeah, I'm powerful. Yeah, I'm perfect. Yeah, I'm in heaven and God, but I'm going to lay it down, take up a cross for the good of the people around me. Is that the type of humility you're displaying? Not weakness, but meekness. Yeah, I have this power. Yeah, I have this ability. Yeah, I have this position and place in life, but I'm going to harness it and use it for the good of other people, not just to serve me. The last thing to close. If we're going to do this, if we're going to change the perception, if we're going to live in this humility, if we're going to inspect our ambitions... We've got to remember, thirdly, don't limit your attention to only your interests. Don't limit your attention to only your interests. Verse 4 is where we get this from. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This word look here doesn't mean just to casually glance. It doesn't mean just to cut your eyes over at a certain time. It means to fix your eyes on. It means to lock in focus on the interests of others. And what's interesting about the word interest here is that in the Greek, it's not specifying one individual thing. It's kind of a a fill in the blank. It's kind of a filler there. So when Paul says, look not to your own happiness, but also to the happiness of others. Look not to your own needs, but also to the needs of others. Of others, You can put whatever you want to in there. Finances, property, family, health, reputation, education, success, and happiness. The point is, don't look at just your stuff. Look out for others. Look out for your children. Husband, look out for your wife. Look out for that co-worker. Look out for that needy single mom down the street. Whatever it might be, look for them. Instead of only looking at yourself, I was convicted about this recently in a very practical way. I went to a Dunkin' Donuts early one morning to meet with a guy for Bible study. It was a cold, rainy morning, and obviously I looked out to my own interest. It's cold, it's rainy, I'm tired, I'm getting me a coffee. So I got me a coffee, and I enjoyed it. And I got home later that morning, and my wife looked at me, and not in a passive-aggressive way, but just in a genuinely sorrowful way. Oh, she said, oh, I wish you would have thought and got me something. I could have really used the chai tea. And I was like, oh man, I'm worthless. Because I got to tell you a little bit more of the story. Not only did I meet my own interest in that moment by getting me a coffee, as soon as I went through, I found out while I was there that they had a promotion going on that you could get a free dark roast. So I went and got in my car and went through the drive through and got me another cup of coffee. So I thought of myself doubly that morning before I thought about her at all. But isn't that a picture of our life so often? 
that we just go through every single day, every single morning, every single afternoon, and we always think, what do I want? We look at the menu before us, whether it's in our hand or above us, and we think, what do I want in this situation? What do I want in this part of my life? What do I want today and in this time? And it's all about meeting my needs, and we're not looking into the interests of others. How can I serve them? How can I meet their needs? How can I use this power that I have under constraint to humbly serve them and constantly copy the humility that Christ has shown me? I'll close with this story. It's about a pastor named Dr. Alexander White of Edinburgh in the late 1800s. It was said, the story goes, that you know, uh, another preacher came to the town. And he was holding these revival services. But this preacher had a reputation. And when he came to town, he often used the pulpit to badmouth other preachers in the area. Point out their flaws. Talk about what they weren't doing right. And a friend came to Dr. White after the first evening service that this pastor had been in town. And said, Dr. White, do you know what this man said last night? Dr. White responded, say on. And the friend looks at him and said, he said that Dr. Hood Wilson was not a converted man. Dr. White was indignant at hearing this. He leapt from his chair. His face was dark with indignation. And he said, that rascal, that rascal, Dr. Hood Wilson, not a converted man. How dare he say such a thing? The guy, the visitor, was kind of shocked at this passion and this emotion because he wasn't finished telling him everything that happened. He said, but Dr. White, there's, there's more. He also said that you weren't a converted man. At hearing these words, Dr. White's pacing and emotion seemed to settle immediately. He, his flame subsided. He returned to his chair. He put his face in his hands and he remained there in a long moment of silence. Before he looked at the friend, he said, leave me, friend. Leave me. I must examine my heart. See, the impression and the perception, the brand, if you will, that he had made in this community. It wasn't what he said. It was what he was hearing others say, right? He said, I need to examine my heart. Because maybe I haven't been doing things right. And maybe, yeah, I've been preaching things from a pulpit, but I haven't been living it out in my life. Let me examine me and see what I can change. The actions that I can shift to change the perception and get it back to what it was truly intended to be, and I hope that's the heart we leave here with today. Leave, friends. Let's examine ourselves. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be gone. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for Hope City Church. God, I pray that they would change the perception in this town, that when unchurched and people who aren't followers of you here or ask, what do you think of Hope City Church? The brand, the perception, the impression is things of, of love and generosity and hope and faith and all of these things that we are called to live out. That they're a church of selfless servants who truly want to follow Jesus and show people the hope that is in him. Lord, but would we change our lives individually first? And watch everything else change corporately. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. It's in the power and name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.